morning, Daylighters. I want to start off just by saying thanks for being here. I know it's the summertime and there's lots you could be doing, and I also know it's COVID time and there's lots of reason to stay home, and you've chosen to come and be at least in a, a scattered community this morning and, and worship God together. And so thanks, thanks for showing up. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate that. We're in the middle of a series called The Moaz, The Mother of All Sermons, and exploring the Sermon on the Mount. And I think we're on week four, three or four or five on this one particular verse, Blessed are the Peacemakers. And the Sermon on the Mount we're calling a hill worth dying on. In a, in a world where it's hard to know where to plant your flags, the Sermon on the Mount gives you a lot of insight into what's really important in life. And the, the movie clip you just saw was, a, and, and I know you probably can't see this, but this is an article from The Guardian about the life of Christina Noble. And Christina Noble was known as the woman who transformed the lives of 700,000 children. And she, she was born in Ireland and at the age of 10 put in an orphanage after her mother died. And at that orphanage uh, experienced pretty tremendous physical abuse and was also told that her two siblings were dead. So she, she was taken to this orphanage and she was told that her siblings were gone, which was a lie. It wasn't, it wasn't true. And eventually, because the abuse was so bad, she escaped that orphanage and, and went basically on the streets of Dublin where some really, really terrible stuff occurred to her. Um, she, she, she experienced sexual abuse on the streets to a degree that I, I can't even talk about it comfortably in a, in a, in a, in a crowd like this. And eventually she was, pre she was pregnant uh, as a result of this abuse and was put back in an orphanage, was, was found and put back in an orphanage and was forced to give her baby away up for adoption against her own will. And, and so her, her entire orphanage experience was, was laced with a lot of ugliness. And eventually she found out that her siblings were alive and she escaped the orphanage again and escaped all the way to England to live with her brother where at the age of 18 she got married and in that marriage experienced pretty terrible physical abuse and just had a, a really, really hard time in life. Just lot, lots and lots of tragedy, lots and lots of ugliness. And ultimately, she, somehow in 1989, she ended up in the streets of Vietnam and took a trip there and just fell in love with the kids of Vietnam fell in love with the kids that were living on the streets, fell in love with the kids living in orphanages. And the scene you just saw, she's in a church praying, how can I help these kids? And at some point in her life, according to the movie, she said these words. She said, I'll walk, you lead. And ultimately, God used her upbringing and the ugliness she'd experienced and, and her knowledge of, of what orphan care was like, at least in Ireland, and her, her passion for kids to, to minister to these hundreds of thousands of children in, in ways that probably nobody else could. So, so God took this really terrible, tragic story and turned it into something beautiful. And as we're talking about the, this passage that we've been discovering, where it says, blessed are the erene poioi, which is the Greek word for, that is translated into English as, as peacemakers. And hopefully if you've been paying attention, you know that that's kind of a, a poor translation at this point. It's, it's two words, erene, erene and poio. And arene, of course, is like the coming of spring. Uh, so, so the word for peace is winter is gone, spring has come. The bad is, is gone, the goodness has come. The broken is gone, the wholeness has come. And so it's, it's a word that means wholeness or stability. Or, so, so when we talk about peacemakers, we're talking about people who make stability, people who make wholeness, people who generate wholeness in themselves and in others. And that word poeo is a creation. It's like there was, there, was music, there was no music and then there was music. And that music that was created was created by an artist and it bubbled up out of their soul. And something that wasn't now was. 
So arene poyoi basically means spring has come through one that couldn't help it. It just came up out of them. Something bad was there and something good replaced it because, because something was generated inside someone and created something new. And so this, this word peacemaker, we, I, just, I just feel like I could talk about it for weeks and weeks and I'm not going to, but we've, we've discussed the question of how can you be a peace factory because that's kind of, or a soundness factory or a wholeness factory or a spring factory. How, how can we be people that God raises something up in us that, that bubbles out of us and brings life and wholeness and wellness and as it should be to the world around us? And, and that we've, we've settled on this passage multiple times it's been mentioned that he himself is our Irene. Jesus, this passage in, in Ephesians is talking about Jesus and it's saying that he is our wholeness. He is our soundness. He is the one who makes things as they should be. It comes out of Jesus. And it's something you see pretty consistently in, in Scripture that Jesus was and is the source of arene, or in, in So in Greek, it's arene, In Hebrew, it's shalom. And these words are kind of interchangeable. And they mean peace, wholeness, soundness, wellness, wealth of being. When it was prophesied what Jesus would look like in the Old Testament, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. It was predicted that the Messiah would come, and, and the prophet Isaiah describes what this person would look like. So, so hundreds of years before Jesus, a guy says, here's what he's going to be like. And he says he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We've all sung this at Christmas time. Everlasting Father, Eternal Father, Prince of Shalom. He says the one who will come to fix the world is the Prince of Irene. In the Septuagint, the Greek version, that's, that's what it would say. The Prince of Irene the Prince of Shalom. He is the master of it all. And it's, it's I, I, you may, you'll probably think this is really dumb. I laughed so many times in my office working on this sermon this week because Jesus had this tendency. So after Jesus was dead, he started appearing to people, right? I mean, he just wasn't there and then all of a sudden he was. And this is the stuff he says. It says in John chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Irene be with you. This is the first thing out of Jesus' mouth. So they're, they're all in one room together and scared of the, of the Roman officials that they're afraid are going to come and crucify them too. And then all of a sudden Jesus is there and he says, Irene, here it is, wholeness, soundness, fearlessness, as it should be ishness, if that's even a, a thing. This is what Jesus does. And then, in ver- so that's verse, that's, that's verse 19. In verse 20, Jesus said again, Irene be with you. Now, I don't think you're hearing me, guys. Wholeness, soundness. He, he, he appears in front of them, and he says, soundness, wholeness, fearlessness, as it should be ishness. He says, I am here, all is well. And then, this is the part that cracks me up. I, I think it's so funny, and I'm, I'm terrified that you're not going to think it's funny. Verse 26, a week later, though the doors are locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Irene be with you. He's, he's walking through walls. He's, he's, he's like, okay, guys, here, here I am. You're not getting it. Peace, peace, peace. If I have to show, if I have to, if I have to teleport into your rooms, I'm going to tell you over and over. Peace, 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 peace has come. Peace is here. Ephesians tells us that he is our peace. Isaiah tells us that he is the prince of Irene. He is the prince of peace. And that's what Jesus does. He just he shocks people. Imagine how terrifying this was. You're just there, and then there's this guy, and he goes, peace, peace, peace. I, it's freaking me out, and you don't care, and that's cool. <laughs> but last week, last week we talked about uh, this, this offer of peace, and I, I was giving away some books when people remembered Irene, and somebody, I said, a book for you and a book for you, and that brought up a memory of an Oprah show. What was it? 
you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. Who has not seen the you get a car episode of Oprah? Anybody? So it's, it's, it's really an interesting story because that, that made me look it up because I was interested in it because I'd actually never seen it. I'd just seen the memes over and over. And one of her producers or writers had sat next to a, a guy, I think it was Pontiac. They were Pontiac cars. This is terrible that I don't know because this was a big moment for them. But had sat down on a plane next to one of their manufacturing presidents. And they had decided that, that I, I think it was Pontiac, and if I'm wrong, forgive me, whatever car manufacturer you are, but... Um, they said, well, we'll donate six or seven cars to your show so that you can give away six or seven cars on that day, on this special day that's coming up where they're honoring particular people. And, and the Oprah show and this car manufacturer stayed in communication, and the, car, and the Oprah show kept saying, well, we need more cars. We actually need to give away 12 cars that day. And they, they said, well, okay, we'll give you 12. They said, well, it'd be really nice if we could give away 40 cars that day because we could do this, this, and this. And they said, well, okay. Ultimately, they talked them into 279 cars the entire studio audience. And nobody knew it was coming. Nobody, nobody in the show, so Oprah and some of her key people were the only people who knew. And they had these little boxes with car keys in them. That, that it, at a, so, so they gave away 11 cars to the people on the stage. And then Oprah got up and said, I've got a 12th car I want to give away. And they, they distributed all these boxes and says, in one of these boxes is a key to a car. And if you open it, you get a car. And everybody starts opening their boxes, and every box has a car key in it. And that's when she started saying, you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. And it, it's, it's really this amazing TV moment that you should watch. It's, it's, watch it because, because they had vetted the audience ahead of time to find out people who desperately needed transportation. You know, when you apply to be on the Oprah show, there's a, a document you fill out. And in one of them, they, 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 had, they had sent out a bunch of documents saying, how do you get to and from work, and asking all these questions that that led them to discover who really needed cars. And so it was an audience filled with people who really needed a car that day. And they're just weeping and crying and shaking and screaming and yelling. And it's, it's this really incredible television moment. But the producers said it got really hard after that because everybody wanted a car. And they said it was really hard to produce shows after that. All the audiences wanted cars. And then, they, <laughs> then there was this terrible backlash because they started getting hit with their gift taxes, because these cars were worth so much that they started getting a $7,000 gift tax on their bill. And so, so in this particular case, and I don't even know why I'm telling you this except as a point of interest, in this particular case, you, you did something great and you got hammered for it. You did, some, you did something nice and people, people turned ugly against you. And that's, that's the world we live in. And sometimes it'll feel like that. Sometimes it'll feel like all my efforts are doing nothing. You know, I, I give this much and they want more. I give this much and they complain about, about what happened. And, and it's a hard world. Being a peacemaker, being an arena poyoy, arena poyoy is, is not always easy. It, it doesn't, it's, it's, not, it's not a glamorous world. It's, it, in Jesus' case, it got him hung on a cross. You have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing to bring wholeness and bring soundness and bring rightness into people's lives, even, even when it hurts. So ultimately... This guy that just appears in rooms and says, peace be with you. Irene is yours. There was, in, the, in the 90s, there was this fad of wearing what would Jesus do bracelets. And, and it really, if you're going to be a peacemaker, that's kind of what it means. Is that you're going to walk around saying, what would the Prince of Peace do in this particular situation? So in your own personal life, it means, what do I bring in? What postures do I find myself in worship? What, what, what did Jesus' religion look like? And then when it comes to you and the world, is what would Jesus do in this particular situation or this particular conversation or this particular business experience? And it's, it's being mindful of what the Prince of Peace would do to bring soundness into your life. So in Scripture, 
the, the, in, in the Hebrew, the word shalom has, has a lot of, uh, it makes a lot of appearances in Scripture. And this happens to be one of those cases that, that when we're talking about peace, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right when we read the passage. It's in Joshua chapter 8, verses 31. And they're talking about how to build the, temp, or how to build the altar in the temple. And it says, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. So when God said, this is what I want my church to look like, my physical building church to look like, when I, what I want my altar to look like, he said, uncut stones. And in the Hebrew, that's actually the word shalom stones. It's this word for soundness or wholeness. It's, it's, the shalom stone is a stone that has no cracks. It's a perfect stone. When it's, when it's cut out of granite or cut out of shale or cut out of rock or whatever it was cut out of, it came out whole and pure and perfect. And God said, this is, this is what I want my altar built out of, is this arene stone, this, this shalom stone, something perfect. And so, so in some sense, when we talk about being a peacemaker, just, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. It means peacemakers carry the DNA of God. Peacemakers look like God. In some sense, it's talking about building walls that are sound and building, building walls that are appropriate or building shelters that, that work. In another sense that we'll talk about in just a moment, it talks about walls having to come down. So a peacemaker is both building and tearing down at all times. This is, of course, the Berlin Wall between East and West Berlin. And it was, a, it was most people would say, an incredible moment for the world when that wall came down and there was this dividing line between two countries and they finally became one. I know, I know this, this week there was some great news that, that Israel reached a peace accord with AME, and, and we see walls being torn down. And so as peacemakers, as Arena Poyoy, we're people who build up, but we're also people who tear down. And we have to kind of respectively figure out when it's time to build and when it's time to break. There's, there's systems, there's ideas, there's thoughts that need to be destroyed. There's people, there's thoughts, there's ideas that need to be built up. And, and as a peacemaker, we're discerning. We're constantly seeking God's wisdom on when is it time to build up, when is it time to break down. And it's not always easy. That passage in Ephesians 2 that we've hit so many times where it says, He himself is our peace. He himself is our arene. Jesus is our peace. It's really interesting to see what follows after this. So we're going we're to explore it for just a moment. In Ephesians 2, it says, He himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, thus making Irene. He came and preached Irene to you who were far away and Irene to those who were near. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So in this passage where, in Ephesians, where it says Jesus is our peace, it's talking specifically about two people groups that are hostile towards one another. And that the peacemaker, the prince of peace, came in and breaks down the walls between them. And in this particular case, he's talking about the Jewish people and the Gentile people, the, the Jews and the non-Jews. And this was this, he's speaking to, the author is, is speaking to, into a world where the Jewish people are being oppressed by the non-Jewish people. The, the Romans are occupying their world and, and, and treating them really poorly. And then the Jews viewed the, the Romans or the, the pagans as just that, as pagans, as bad people as heathens that were anti-God and away from God. And so there was this friction, there was this awfulness between them where they kind of hated each other, enough to where the author of Ephesians described it as, not there, not there, the wall of hostility. There was hostility between them. And so we've talked about 
what it means to be a peacemaker personally, soundness, to build it up in your own life, that there's posturing involved, getting on your knees in, in front of God, studying the scriptures and allowing God to speak to you, that, that, that there's a peacemaker, you generate peace in and of yourself so that you are at peace, you are in wholeness and you are in soundness, but it goes much further than that. It goes into creating peace in the world. It means walking out of church doors and doing something out there. It means that this thing that's occurring in your life where God is giving you soundness and wholeness, it affects the school you teach in or the, the kids that you counsel or the people that you talk to when you're out on the streets feeding them with your food truck. It, 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 it means that it's, it's, it's not just a me thing, but it's a me and them thing, this peacemaking thing that God says makes you illustrate the DNA of God. And so we have to figure out what walls to break down. And I've been reading a lot. There's several areas that I have passions about, and one of them is, is on race and race theory and racial reconciliation. And, and so if, if those conversations make you uncomfortable, you're probably going to be uncomfortable fairly often at Daylight Church because I, I'm, we've, we've been talking about it for, for several years now. And I was, I was reading recently about a, a, concern, a, a, a phrase that was, was coined uh, immediately after the Ahmaud Aubrey death, I believe. And it was, it was this article by Daniel Burke called Why Black Christians Are Bracing for a White Lash. And I'm, I'm of the opinion that God is doing something really cool when it comes to race and racial equity right now. I think, I think there's, there's this potential for, for change to occur in some areas that are, that are necessary. And history shows that it takes white people to... to to step into situations before real change occurs. So, so back in the days of slavery, the, the, the black slaves were calling out saying, this is unfair, this is, this is unequitable, this is awful. And nothing occurred until some white people developed a conscience about it. And white people stepped in and made a difference. And when it came to redlining and Jim Crow and basically every, every great event that's occurred when it comes to racial healing, it's been black voices speaking up and black voices talking, but real change didn't occur until white brothers and sisters came alongside them and said, we feel you too, we're with you too. And I know I speak to a primarily white audience today, and, and I say that we have a responsibility to take this moment in history seriously when we're talking about what walls to build up and what walls to break down. And this isn't the point of the sermon, but it will illustrate one of the points we need to make, is that we have to take this seriously. If we're peacemakers, that we at least have to look at the conversation and look at it hard. And when this, when this author, Mr. Burke, was writing about white lash, he was specifically describing this moment, the moment white Christians tire of talking about race, and bristle when black pastors or congregants want to continue the conversation. And that happens, and I feel it already in here. I feel it in my life, and I feel it on Facebook, that, that there's this moment in history where we can start move, working together and start moving together more and having better, more productive conversations. And some people are saying, why are we still talking about this? Some people are hand-waving it and saying, I'm tired of talking about this. Can't we get, get on to other stuff? And in churches universally, a lot of times the church wants to say, can't we get back to the things that really matter like salvation and going to heaven and worshiping God and so forth? And that's what I want to push back against today. Uh, the, there was a, this author, and he, he happens to be the, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, Walter Kim. He's the, he's the first Asian president of the National Association of Evangelicals. But he said, the outworking of evangelicalism's public theology needs to catch up to its understanding of personal transformation. In other words, what happens in here goes out there. That has to happen. 
And whether, it, whether it's in the issue of race or whether it's in the issue of orphan care in Vietnam or whether it's in substance abuse on the streets of Louisville or socioeconomic boundaries that shouldn't be there or governmental policies that, that corrupt and lead to oppression, people who follow Jesus, who have the Prince of Peace in their lives, who worship the author of peace and have the shalom, erene, peace of God in their lives, need to be out there doing something stepping up and letting that personal transformation that's occurred in their life affect what goes on in public. It means it shows up in your life. It means it shows up all over. And ultimately, it means that this whole thing is not about fire insurance, but it's kingdom come. It's not about how do I get to heaven? How can I be close enough to God where I am accepted by him and brought, ushered into his kingdom? That's, that's a part of this whole conversation, but it's a really small part. There's an author named Bruxy Cavey and a, a pastor in Canada, and a super controversial guy. If you read about him, you'll, some of his stuff you'll like, some of it you'll hate. But there's one thing he says, and, he, he, and I've shared this illustration in, at Daylight before, but he says, he says a lot of people view life like this, and you're on a continuum. And at some point, you're going to die. And then the hope of the gospel is that God will come along and attach another kingdom, and you'll get to continue that continuum. You'll get to continue to walk out that continuum and be in heaven with him forever. So, it's, so that the kingdom of God looks like this. He says the kingdom of God was never intended to look like this. The kingdom of God was intended to look like this. That at some point, the kingdom of God invades your life and impacts your life and consumes your life and changes you forever to where that continuum starts now. It starts today, heaven on earth, kingdom of God here, now. So when we read about racial equity or violence, uh, and I don't mean racial violence, that's, that's another, another issue entirely, but when, when it comes to people who are hurting, people who are sick, people who are in prison, people who are naked, people, people who have addictions, people who are li have life-controlling issues, it means kingdom of God now that we step into those things, we allow ourselves to be consumed by them, and that the world is changed. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. That's what it means to be ereno poyoi. It means this has changed, and because this has changed, my whole sphere of influence is affected. Because this has changed, I see out there. I shema, like we talked about last week. I hear the voice of God calling out for people to be liberated, people to be free, people to think soundly. And ultimately, if we went around this room to say, what does that look like in each person's life? It's going to be different, and that's kind of the point, is you're going to do something different than what I'm going to do. You're going to be passionate about things that I'm going to do. You're going to believe things about what is right and wrong in this world and how to enact change different than what I do. But my hope and goal is that the Prince of Peace invades your heart so that who you are affects the world around you. It's called praxis or orthopraxy. It means theology put into practice. It's, it's, it's how does theology affect the world around me. And practice is kind of hands-on, what do we do with our lives? Orthopraxy is kind of, has to do with kind of the rituals and the rhythms of Christianity. When, when do you take communion? When do you pray? How often do you study scripture? So that's kind of orthopraxy. And practice is, what do I do out in the streets? What do I do in, in my workplace? And there's this interesting YouTube channel called Nice Body, But What Can You Do With It? Super interesting stuff. And they, they get bodybuilders and people who are ripped and shredded and challenge them to physical activities to see if their ripped and shreddedness actually helps them. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about praxis. Does your theology do anything? Can you do anything with your religion? Can you do anything with the fact that the Prince of Peace has invaded your life? Or is it just making you look good? Is it just making you more spiritual, you more spiritually shredded and, sh and, and spiritually ripped? Or is it calling you to go do something that you couldn't possibly do 
if that change hadn't occurred inside you. So it means the kingdom comes in the arts and culture and science and architecture and government and money and health and every other area. I mean, it's this. It's the kingdom has come here in my life and now kingdom come everywhere. My life invades other lives and affects and impacts other lives. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about blessed are the peacemakers is I'm bringing soundness and wholeness because I've received the, the king of soundness and wholeness in me. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're a shalom stone that has every crack filled and everything right. It means that there's one in you now that is. It means there's one inside of you that has, is perfect. And then he uses your voice and your hands and your feet and your finances and your time. The Prince of Peace lives in you and goes out into the world and makes a difference. And so I want to give you three tips. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three tips on what this looks like. I'm going to share a story of someone who I think is doing it well, and then we're going to talk about where you go from here. And we're going to do that in about eight minutes. Hang in there. When we're talking about either building walls or tearing down walls, it has to do with seeing the gaps or the blockades that are in front of you. Because if you're, if, if you're at your workplace and I'm at my workplace, we see things differently. We, we see, if, if you're in part, involved in a ministry to the imprisoned, for example. And let's say Dylan is involved with ministry to hungry people. They're going to see a lot of the same stuff, but they're going to see totally different stuff as well. It's going to be a different life, different world, different answers, different solutions. There's going to be walls that need to be built up where Dylan's concerned that aren't built up where someone else is concerned. There's going to be walls that need to be broken down where Dylan's concerned and not broken down where others are concerned. So you you have to see your life and where God has brought you. So when we talked about Christina Noble, she had endured terrible things in orphanages, terrible things as a child on the streets, terrible things when it came to how she was, how she was treated as an orphan. So she had a passion. When she looked at the world, she saw the gaps in the wall in that system. She saw the things that needed to be built up, Shalom Stone's building a wall in that system. Whereas maybe I, would never, maybe I see that system from afar, and there's other systems that I see from close up. So the question is, what are the gaps in front of you? What are the things God is bringing your attention to? What is, what is he calling you to? What, when you hear the voice of God saying, bring change, bring change, bring change, bring peace, bring shalom, what is he saying? And what he's saying to you is different than what he's saying to me. Then you've got to make a plan. So you've got to see the thing that needs to be built up or the thing that needs to be torn down, and you've got to start thinking, well, what does that look like? It means brainstorming. It means pulling people in to help you. It means calling people and saying, hey, I've noticed that this is going on. So, so Jordan, for example, who I mentioned before, counsels children. And, and a lot of times these would be children in, in tough situations, right? He's going to see things that I don't see. But he's also going to be connected with people that I'm not connected to that can help him, can give him wisdom, can give him instruction, that can come alongside him. He's also going to have gifts and skill sets and abilities that I absolutely don't have because of his education. And so it means taking who you... So, so you see what God is pointing out to you, and then you say, what can I do about it? How can I build that wall? Or how can I tear down that wall? And who can I bring along with me? And then finally, you got to do the grind. you got to do the work, and it's your work. You are necessary. You, every human being in this room and every human being out there, anybody that will listen to our podcast is necessary because they are in, part, they're in front of a part of the wall that is broken down that I'm not in front of, that Kara is not in front of. 
Every one of you has a calling to fill that gap or to build something up or to break something down, and only you can fulfill that calling. And that means you have to work, and work isn't always fun. Not every part of ministry is glamorous. Not every part of counseling is glamorous. Not every part of serving people is going is to be great. In fact, a crucifixion is pretty nasty, and that's what Jesus had to endure. You have to do the work, and work is hard. You can't give up because work is, 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 is hard. You can't expect work to be easy. This kingdom, this, this is not easy. And if you're expecting easy, you're not expecting the ministry of Jesus in your life. The cross was challenging. The way of the cross is difficult. I want to share with you, and, and then we'll point out these, these three things, the way this person's doing this. And I didn't ask for their permission, so, but they're not in here, so we can talk about them all we want. It's pretty great. This is Kate Barron. And Kate was Kentucky School Counselor of the Year uh, a, a couple years ago, two or three years ago. And an amazing school counselor that cares about her kids, cares about the children that are under her care, and cares about kids everywhere. I mean, it's just a passion of hers. So she, she, sees a part of the, and she sees a part of the wall that I don't see, and she contacted me last week and said, hey, I'm thinking about all these kids that are going back to school during COVID and all those kids that are not going back to school during COVID and all those kids that are being homeschooled and disrupted and some with learning disabilities and some who need attention and some who can't be isolated. And it's just, you know, it, it's, it's hard for kids right now. She said, I keep thinking about them, and I'm wondering if there's something I can do. And, and she, she said, how about, if we, how about if I start a weekly Zoom meeting for kids that are having a hard time adjusting to this? And, and she's, she's spitballing here. She's thinking about, here's the gap in the wall that I see. So, so let's, let's, let's talk through these three steps that she did. Number one, she saw, she saw the gap. She saw the blockades. She saw the things that needed to be torn down and the things that needed to be builded up. And it was hers. It was her. It was she owned it. It was the thing that she sees that, that is right in front of her, and she wanted to bring change to. And so then she started making a plan. She reached out to me, and she said, let's brainstorm. Let's come up with an idea. And so this is, this is her wanting to do something and bring somebody alongside her that, that might think this is important and could be helpful. And we had a conversation about uh, an el elementary school that we have here, right, right here near Progress. It's Price Elementary that we've already been in communication with that we really want to invest in, and we want to serve their teachers, serve their staff, and serve their kids somehow. So I said, well, how about, how about if we reach out to their principal and say, hey, could we make this valuable? I mean, I mean, if you're a principal and the Kentucky Counselor of the Year comes to you and says, hey, I want to serve your kids and I want to, I want to invest in their lives, that to me feels valuable. I'm not saying they'll accept it, and it may seem very strange to them. But you see what I'm talking about now is it went from I see the problem to I'm going to start formulating a solution. And if this solution doesn't work, I'm going to come up with a different solution and try to plug it in somewhere else. But it's coming up with a plan. And then finally it's doing the work. And so we did. We've, we've, we've started sending communication to this principal. If that doesn't work, we're going to put together a Facebook marketing plan where we actually put out advertisements and say, hey, are your kids having a hard time adjusting to this? Well, the Kentucky School Counselor of the Year would like to invest in your kids. It's free of charge. It won't hurt you at all. She has the credentials. She'd like to talk to your kids. And it's doing the work. It's doing the grind. And, and it'll go beyond that. It'll mean every week logging on to that Zoom, investing in those kids. And, and then here's what's going to happen. She's going to start seeing other gaps in the wall. She's going to see other stones that need to be put in place when she starts meeting the kids in their personal situations. And then what does she do? She comes up with a plan. And then what does she do? She does the work. And now she's Ereno Poyoy. Now she's a peacemaker. Now the kingdom of God has come and the Jesus that lives inside of her and the Prince of Peace who is filling her is starting to affect the world and change the world and it will continue. 
and more holes in the wall will be seen and more blockades that need to be torn down will be seen. And she will be equipped to say, I'm going to come up with a plan and I'm going to do the work. It doesn't mean she'll fix every wall. And that's, not, that's the point here. It's not your job to fix everything. It's not your job to change the world. It's your job to see the gaps in front of you, to see the blockades in front of you and tackle those. If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah 3, and we're going to close up in one minute. And if you've got an electronic device, you can just type in Nehemiah 3. So in Nehemiah 3, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has been uh, in, in dire straits because all their walls have been torn down. And if you know anything about the history of Jerusalem, you know it's a history of violence. It's a history of being conquered and free, liberated, conquered, and liberated over and over again. And, and in, in, in Nehemiah 3, we find them starting to build the wall. That's what the whole book of Nehemiah about is. Let's build a wall around Jerusalem and make it safe. And I want to start in verse 3. It says, the fish gate was rebuilt. And this is, this is one of those passages that you'll just skip over most of the time because there's lots of names in it. And they're Hebrew names and you don't want to bother. It says, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uri, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Barakai, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. And it goes on and on. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joida. They laid the beams. Next to them, repairs by Gibeon. Meltai and Gibeon and Jadon and Merinoth, places under the authority, Uzile. And it goes on, and here's the picture that you see. You see a picture of the walls of Jerusalem being built, not everybody coming together saying, let's construct this massive wall, let's come up with this amazing plan and I'll be a part of this plan and as a body go build a wall. Instead, it's you do the part in front of you. You do the part in front of you. And if we'll hold hands doing that, if we'll work side by side, if we'll see our, part, our gaps in the walls or our blockades that need to come down, if I'll do it and you'll do it and the person next to them will do it and the person next to them will do it, the wall gets built, the city is safe. But what happens if someone ignores their section of the wall? It only takes one section. It only takes one place in the wall for, for an army to pour through and the city to be destroyed. And so I think it's fair to say, I, I, think, I think what the story is trying to illustrate is that you are needed. That this arena of God, this peace that God is hopefully doing in your life and manufacturing in your life that now you start to see the world around you. Now you start to see the gaps in the wall. Now you start to see the people in front of you. Now you start to see the systems in front of you. And you see them, make a plan, and work. 